This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Christy is an advanced placement and international baccalaureate literature teacher. And Gary is an APIB psychology history teacher and my husband. Last week, we delved into section one of Fahrenheit 451, titled The Hearth and the Salamander. Today, we're going to take in section two, titled The Sieve and the Sand, As we get ready to roll out the second section, I do have to give a shout-out. Well, actually, a couple of shout-outs. The first being to my wonderful husband, because this week, we spent the entire week, because it's spring break, in Cancun, Mexico, one of this hemisphere's amazing destinations. The Mexican people are some of the most gracious and hospitable The beaches are some of the bluest, and the culture is thousands of years old. Gary and I laid on that beach and read this book in preparation for this podcast. And the irony was not lost on Gary that we were literally in a utopia on Earth reading about dystopia. So, with that bit of paradise on the mind, remind us, Gary, what we talked about last week. Well, first of all, I'm a great lover of irony, so I guess that's my habit to notice things like that. And secondly, I have to give you the fun Christy fact that we haven't given you yet. Ah, you weren't expecting that, were you? No. Not only is Christy left-handed, she is the absolute most left-handed female you may ever meet in your life. Just thought I'd pass that along. Before I do, let me not forget to thank everyone that is listening to these podcasts with us. We hope you're enjoying the discussions and the engagement of the text as much as we are. And if you do like it, don't forget, subscribe. Also, check out our website for notes. If you're a teacher, look for instructional materials and some links about the things we talk about here. Last week, we got a good chance to talk with Montag and watch him engage and compare two very different women in his world, Clarice and Mildred. Now, let me sum up a little bit about what they did. Chapter 1 was mostly about the comparison between Clarice, who was engaged in her world, 
who was connected to people around her, who was uh, in touch with her senses and the things that she was experiencing in life. Montag meets her on the way home from work one night after he's self-satisfied from burning some houses. And he has a conversation with Clarice that completely mystifies him. Then he goes home to his very detached wife. And uh, what happens, Bradbury spends a lot of the first chapter contrasting the person of Clarice with the person of Mildred, setting you up for this dichotomy, this extreme of one person who's disconnected with the world and another person who's very connected with their world. And this becomes very intriguing, the Montag. So there's a lot of that that goes on in the first chapter. Then eventually we see uh, Montag and his fireman friends, uh, Beatty, Stoneman, and Black. They go to burn an old woman's home because she has books there. While the they're in the process of burning a house down, uh, the woman basically commits suicide by setting the house on fire herself because she would rather die with her books than without them. Montag is stunned by anybody who would have such a passion. He makes him wonder what's in books that would make him make anybody want to uh, burn themselves alive like that. He steals a book. He goes home. Once again, he talks with uh, Mildred. He's reminded of how pointless their relationship is. And uh, then we finish the chapter with his chief, Beatty, coming to talk with him about the meaning of life. And they end that chapter with a great discussion. All right. In today's section, uh, just like the last section, the plot advancement really is very simple. Uh, the meat of the section is really going to center around the dialogue, the dialogue between Montag and a new character that we're going to meet but mostly around the inner conflict that you see developing and really coming into a climax uh, inside of Montag. So by way of spoiler, I do want to kind of run through the plot really quickly uh, so then we can really engage in some of the extremely complex and nuanced philosophical and psychological arguments that we see Bradbury kind of putting forth through a very simple narrative. So point one or plot point one, Montag and Mildred read together. Montag had thrown out these books uh, after their visit, or really before their visit with BD in the first section, and he asks her to sit down and read them with him. Number two, Montag remembers and then tracks down Faber. Three, Montag is going to show Mildred a Bible. Four, Montag goes to see Faber and they have a discussion. Five, Montag comes up with this goofy plan that he wants to burn down all the firehouses. Six, Montag goes back home and engages Mildred and her friends in the parlor, eventually scaring them and making everybody cry. Seven, Montag goes back to the firehouse, but this time he has this thimble doobie wobber in his ear so Faber can hear and talk to him while he engages um, Beatty. Uh, and eight, the firehouse gets a call. Beatty chooses to drive the salamander. They go to Montag's house. Chapter ends. All right, that's the action in a nutshell. So now that we kind of know where the story is going, let's go back and see this argument that uh, Bradbury is really trying to make. Let me first say what I think the argument is and then uh, how I see this argument kind of unfolding. First of all, what I really think Bradbury is trying to do is show us that there is a connection between the value of human relationships and the value of self-discovery, which we kind of see unfold inside the life of Montag. And 
Bradbury is going to suggest that this engagement of history and literature and the arts that we find, and he personifies this through books, uh, through the thoughts of mankind, somehow value and meaning are found and can only be found when we engage in these kinds of things and then engage in other people creating some sort of human bond. And this is where we're going to find meaningful existence. So, uh, Gary, do you agree with me that that's where this is going, or or, or what are your thoughts? And, and then we'll talk about how we got there. Well, a couple of things I want to say. First of all, you pointed out the plot's simple, but yet the narrative is really deep and really complex. And I also am intrigued by this idea that Bradbury is a science fiction writer, but yet the the whole important meat of this book is about relationships and how scientific things attack it. I don't know if he intended that. I don't know. Like I've, I've given my disclaimer before. I'm not a Bradbury expert and they are out there and they can, uh, they certainly would know a lot more than I do, but I find it interesting that he keeps coming back to the importance of this human element and relationship element. And we see it played out, especially in chapter two. Yeah, he doesn't, he's certainly not a fan of robots and, and that kind of thing. Well, let's talk about uh, chapter two. It starts off, they're sitting there in the rain. I point this out because rain is, a, uh, is an archetype that he's kind of used before in chapter uh, one. On page 17, when he engages uh, Clarice, it's in the rain. Um, he uh, describes her exactly as being in the rain. Uh, and rain, of course, is another symbol of spiritual birth. And we see this happening, and I think he's trying to say that he's going out there, Montag is going out there and kind of experiencing some sort of in uh, personal spiritual birth. And, of course, Clarice just stands outside all the time in the rain as if she is one and of it. It's one of the reasons why I think she's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably would too, actually. So they're outside, and it's raining outside, and he is going to engage it, and Mildred, we're going to see, is going to choose not to. But they're trying, and I have to give Mildred a little bit of credit. She wants uh, to watch TV, but he's making her sit there and read, and she's sitting there doing it, kind of like how a lot of my kids in school stare at me when I make them read. But he starts off with this quote by this guy named James Boswell. Now, I wasn't really familiar with this writer. His most famous book uh, is one where he writes as a biography of this guy named Samuel Johnson, who's a much more famous person and in the book uh well in the part of the book that he quotes uh, which this quote is incredible in and of its own right montag reads this and he reads it 10 times because he doesn't really understand it and he says we cannot tell the precise moment when friendship is formed as in filling a vessel drop by drop there is at last a drop which makes it run over so in a series of kindnesses, there is at last one which makes the heart run over. Now that quote in and of itself I think is worth repeating, and I want to read it again because I want us to think about what he's saying. We cannot tell the precise moment when friendship is formed, which is interesting because Montag and Mildred are married, and they, if you would ask them, they would say they love each other, but they don't really seem as if they have what we would call a friendship. Yeah, in the last chapter, Mildred couldn't even remember how they met. <laughs> and he says, because 
friendship is in filling it's and here's the analogy it's in filling a vessel drop by drop there is at last a drop which makes it run over so how do you create friendship well the only way according to boswell that you're going to create friendship is if you have this communication drop by drop you talk and this back and forth adds drops and it's a series of kindnesses there is at last one that makes the heart run over and boom you have a friend and we see this expressed through james ball boswell and samuel johnson he was his biographer they spent hours and hours and hours uh interview well he did interviewing johnson late in life i think he was like 53 years old when this happened and through this intense amount of time that they spent together even though they didn't intend it a friendship and meaning was found and so bradbury starts the chapter by making this argument that friendship is made when you engage people one-on-one in a conversational manner he goes on to quote a second boswell quote which is hysterical that i think clarice kind of misunderstands he says that uh, boswell also says that favorite subject myself he squinted at the wall that favorite subject myself to which mildred said oh i understand that one <laughs> yeah and she's meaning it in this really selfish narcissistic way like i love me i love talking about me i want to be in the movie i want to look in the mirror i want to doll myself up i want to make myself up and that's not i don't believe the way that um, boswell intended it at all he's trying to say that you have to discover yourself to find meaning and to be able to give back to other people. There has to be a sense of self-discovery. And that is a favorite topic. And, and it's not in a narcissistic way. In fact, it's in an important way. It's a way that enables you to engage yourself, understand yourself, engage each other, and be a contributing member, which is what he sees reflected in Clarice. Because in fact, Montag says, well, Clarice is the opposite of you. She's interested her favorite subject was everyone else. Right. And maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. She was just, she was she was integral. She was whole. And so it expressed itself uh, as a curiosity in other people. And of course, Mildred is interested in other people too, but they're the family, as she calls it. Which, right. <laughs> which is, for the, for the listeners, every time we use the word family, that means her televisions. <laughs> Right. And of course, we see something else that's interesting, and I think it's worthy of pointing out. Mildred is afraid, and she's really afraid that she's going to get caught. Actually, she has, I think she has two feelings. She's bored out of her mind, and she's afraid she's going to get busted. And I have to wonder what she's so afraid of. Does she think they're going to burn her house down, or is she afraid of some sort of social repercussions that's, that these books are going to infect her? And she's going to think a thought that she shouldn't think. I don't know. It doesn't explain it. But she's clearly horrified. And it, it almost feels a little bit irrational. And she says, why should I read? What for? Well, of course, we saw in the last chapter that she was 200% for conformity. So, yeah, having books in her home is breaking conformity. So, you know, we can leave that to inter- interpretation, whether she did that out of... Uh, fear of the of the firemen coming for her or whether she feared losing conformity more so what she's not afraid of and that's the bombers that are crossing the sky going over the houses they don't even notice he brings it back again and there's apparently it's getting bigger and bigger they're circling they're more violence 
and it's just a part of everyday life. Well, I want to go back to the poem for just a moment. So Montag reads this poem to Mildred, and how many times did you say he read it? No, he just read the one quote, he, and it says he read it, what, ten times. It right. Said, yeah. And that's important. He reads it ten times, and the name of this chapter is The Sand and the Sieve, and he tells a story about being a young child, or when Montag was a young child, that older kids played a dirty trick on him. They gave him a sieve and told him if he could fill it up with sand that he would get a, a reward for that. And it took him a while to catch on. You could never fill up the sieve because it's full of holes and the sand runs through it. Well, obviously, he's reading this poem ten times, and he's in the poem is the sand, and it's going through his brain, which is the sieve, and he's having a hard time grasping its meaning. Now, in psychology, there's a field called linguistics, and all linguistics does is it studies the use of language, the meaning of language, how people interact with language, how we reify with language. And reify means you take something that's not real and you give it a linguistic meaning and all of a sudden now it's real and it's there. Uh, like I can throw out the word freedom. People can't really explain what freedom is, but they have an understanding that it's a good thing and it's a positive thing, but you ask them to explain it and they've reified it in different ways. Anyway, the point I want to make is that reading takes a couple of very specific psychological skills. When you're reading a book, and it's interesting that the sieve shows this, number one, you have to maintain a past narrative while you're reading a book. Number two, you have to make current sense of the page you are reading as you're collecting information. And number three, you are forecasting in your mind where the story is going, and you're making a judgment is the story interesting? Do I want to continue? Is it compelling? Is there any information I like? So you have three very complicated linguistic functions that it takes when you read things. And in Montag's world, all they do is read manuals, which really don't require all those skills. And so here he is now trying to take these three skills to implement and read something. He's he's staring at this poem over Well, this over. is not a very... Uh, uncommon problem. In fact, I had a, a parent that came in last week and, and a child that came in and we were reading Huck Finn and she was saying, I'm reading this. I promise you I'm reading this. And she fails every test. She says, I read it. I just, it just comes in and it goes out. It comes in and it goes out. And this idea that you have to be able, uh, well, you're saying hold the meaning in your mind, which is true, but you also have to be able to visualize what's yeah. going on, like create a little movie of what it is and, and add the details that they have left out to be able to make sense of it. And the more complex the text is, of course, the more difficult uh, that becomes. And what Montag is trying to read, well, in this case, he pulls out the Bible, which is an interesting piece for Bradbury to choose. Why pick the Bible? Uh, it's a, Of course, it's one of the most important canonical books in Western culture. And whether you are a person who believes it's a sacred text which written from the hand of God, or if you're a person who believes it's a, a human a human book, you have to agree that it's foundational to much of Western thought. And so it is indeed extremely complex, and it takes a lot to bring in. Can you take a moment just to explain what you mean by canon or canonical? Right. There are books that are a part of our culture, and they've been, they've been used to, to create our cultural understanding. So they've said an author has said something very important. And then this has developed a conversation that has gone on over the ages. So for example, 
the words of Jesus are not just words of Jesus that were spoken 2,000 years ago, but he's putting forth an argument. The argument that we see in this chapter that we see that he's reading actually out of the Gospels and the quote that he says, the lilies of the field, the lilies of the field, the lilies of the field. Well, that comes from a passage in the New Testament where Jesus is saying, you are foundationally important. As a human being, you have value. The lilies of the field have value, but you have more value. Well, this is a foundational concept that we have constructed our democracy on. Our, our institutions are based on this. The value of each individual worth is a discussion that we've had over the course of, uh, of Western culture. And people have spoken to this. They've agreed with it. They've disagreed with it to what to what extent am I valuable? To what extent are my needs important in versus someone else's needs? And other philosophers and other historians and other poets have weighed in on this. Shakespeare has weighed in on this. Plato has weighed in on this. And so those works are founded upon this, and they're also part of the canon. So Shakespeare is part of the canon. And, uh, of course, uh, the allegory of the cave is part of the canon. And, and over the course of time, you know, books are added and their value to me, and I feel like it's, it's commonly understood, as do they or do they not contribute to this um, vertical conversation that we're having. And if they don't contribute at all, then they are not part of it. We don't read them. We read them for one generation. They're fun. Okay. They could be great. But they go away. They don't stick like some of these do. So he starts off, of course, with the Bible and it's boring to Mildred and he doesn't understand it either, but he just, he comes back to the idea of there's some sort of meaning to this and this meaning, whatever is in this book has such important meaning that it's going to give me meaning. And he looks to her and it, 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 to me, it feels like that the ideas don't connect. You really have to think about them to find the connection. Cause he looks at her and he says, does the white clown love you? He's looking at the television, which of course is not canonical. It's meaningless. It's not designed to have meaning. And he says, does the white clown love you? And she doesn't even understand the question. Yeah, and what's interesting, when, when he uh, looks at Millie and says, Millie, does the white clown love you? It's a question about intimacy. And it's, it's about many things, but it's a question of intimacy. And once again, we, poor Montag takes another stab in the heart that Millie has no idea what love is about and connection and relationship. No, and their whole world is designed to where you don't have to. Because remember, this is a society that is built on the idea that happiness is the goal. Life con constitutes happiness, which is arguable. And there are many philosophers in Western culture, and I think Eastern as well, that would say happiness is not the goal. You do not find meaning. You don't find, exist you don't find fulfillment in pursuing happiness. In fact, you find the exact opposite, which is the argument that he's putting forward. Oh my gosh, he's hammering that like every page. <laughs> right, and Mildred, he's going to say, isn't happy. She's got to take her pills. When she lets her guard down, when she stops the noise, when the white clown is quiet, she collapses. And so she keeps it on all the time. She never has that mm -hmm. moment. When they're in the, when he goes to see Favor, which is what he's going to do next, the subway is blasting people with noise. Never think, never think, never think. Because in the thinking, will you find discontentment? And of course, uh, he found that to be true. So he goes uh, and finds Faber. And when he gets in there... Let me interrupt for just a second. Yeah. Remind us who Faber is. Oh, yeah. So Faber is this guy that he had met years ago sitting on the bench. And he knew as he was a weird 
guy and he thought that he had seen him hiding a book or something in his shirt and he the guy said you can turn me in something along those lines and he didn't and he kept the number his he kept his contact information all these years let me put out there another funny little it's not really important to understand the book but i think it's kind of funny every year when uh when i used to teach this book i don't anymore we would watch the a and e biography about bradbury which a and e makes amazing biographies and they interviewed him and what he he tells the story that he wrote this book of course in nine days in the basement of the library and when he decided to name the characters he looked up and there are boxes of books not boxes of books I mean sorry boxes of typing paper stacked up on the floor and the company that made the typing paper was called Montag that's where that name came from then he looked down and he had next to him a pencil just a number two pencil, and the company that made the pencil was Faber. And he has this, aha! So Montag is the paper, and Faber is the pencil. And so we're going to see... Right, Montag's the blank paper being written upon by Faber. That's it. And so this character is named Faber, and that's kind of who he goes to, his sage, his guru, uh, to find out why... Are books so important that the woman would kill herself? And can I basically wants to know, can I find meaning in my existence? Because I feel like my life has no meaning. And I feel like there must be something to give me meaning if I can read it. And I try to read it, but I can't. Well, and it's interesting to me, or it needed to be pointed out to me, that Montag thinks books are magical. What does Faber say about that? Well, he completely challenges that idea. In fact, he goes on to say, uh, no, they're not at all. In fact, it's not the books in and of itself. It's what are in the books. He says the books are receptacle. And of course, today we have many receptacles. Movies are a receptacle. You know, we're, this podcast is a receptacle. So there are different ways that that ideas are, are, um, are communicated and preserved and it's through the preservation of ideas that you can engage yourself and engage other people. And he says there's some things that you have to have for this to happen. First of all, you have to have quality books, books that have features, that he says that are going to have pores, that have something to say. And he's going to say something that is, of course, unpopular these days, that is controversial. They should make you feel uncomfortable. And today, even uh, in school, we're often taught we don't want to have controversy because controversy will create disagreement. Disagreement will create antagonism, which will create hatred, which will create um, problems and discomfort. And, of course, that's not what we want. And he's going to say you have to have that. You have to be able to disagree about things. You have to be able to be wrong. And he says, in fact, he goes back... And he references Jesus. He goes, Jesus, today, Christ is one of the family now. He says, I often wonder if God recognizes his own son the way we've dressed him up or dressed him down. He's a regular peppermint stick now, all sugar, crystal, and saccharin. And of course, Jesus was anything but a peppermint stick or something that was easy to swallow. He was the first to say that my words are divisive. They divide families. In fact, they were so divisive, they divided a group of people to the point that they murdered him solely on the basis of what he was saying. So you, Christ 
it was first and foremost a controversial character that was introducing the world the world with words that were he would call have quality and features that were engaging people and how you engaged his words um, created a very strong reaction and Faber is going to say that's important so you have to be able to engage difficult things think through them that people could possibly potentially disagree with and the second thing you have to have is leisure you want to speak to that well, I want to come back to this, go back for just a moment to the whole uh, books are not magical conversation. Faber, I feel like, is introduced at this point because up to this point, Montag is pursuing books and what they might hold in the same way that Millie was pursuing her sleeping pills. Hmm. Uh, he thought maybe they had some pleasing anesthetic power. I don't know. But Faber is interjected in the discussion to say, no, they're not another form of a sleeping pill. They're not ear thimbles with music playing. They're a whole completely different entity. And what books do is that they record life with all of its pores, as he said. In other words, warts and all. And for the point of making life three-dimensional, Mildred's world was all these flat-screen televisions, which her world was two-dimensional. And Faber is saying, no, the life is three-dimensional. And, and he says these books have details because they have to have details because we're afraid that we'll forget what life is about without those details. Well, it's also interesting that one of the complaints that Mildred says is that the books aren't real. Uh, and people say that about fiction all the time. Why do you read fiction? It's not real. Well, a person who studies literature would, would argue, and I think it's absolutely true, that they are real. In fact, perhaps they're more real. They're presenting life in an abstract way. They're not a reflection of one person's life, but they're kind of a, a discussion about things that happened in life in kind of a condensed form and it allows the writer to present, this is the way I engage the world. This is looking at the world through my lens. This is how you see it. So you can never live another person's life except vicariously and so it gives you the opportunity to engage another reality in an honest way and an open-minded way which other medians can't do and most importantly Bradbury has this great quote and it's going to come through favor maybe books the most important reason we have books he says books remind us what asses and fools we are Oh, that is an that. awesome quote. It is. And when I read that, I immediately thought, oh, that is the arrogance of the present. In other words, if you think the the life you are living in this current moment is the most advanced life is ever going to be, that we are the most enlightened and all these kind of things, you have this arrogance of the present. And if you don't ever read a book or do anything that takes you away from this current present moment, you become... Uh, very, you, you, well, let me say this. You see this current moment as the authoritative statement on everything. And as a result, you end up with this arrogance. And so books take you away from that and remind you, uh, if you take yourself too seriously, you're an ass and a fool. Well, yeah, because everyone's lived the same thing in a different setting over and over again. The, the, the hurts that I have are the same ones that Hester Prynne had and the same ones that Antigone had. And you're talking about crossing time and space. And that's an excellent point because 
you can get caught up when you have pain. You can get caught up in the trap of thinking your pain is the most unique pain ever felt. And that is isolating when you can realize whatever pain it is you felt have been shared by millions of people. Well, and the way they, they deal with pain in this society is just to ignore it and right. to drown it out with something else, which brings us to the second thing that he thinks you have to have, which is leisure. And what he means by leisure is not you know, the opportunity to fly to Cancun, although there is credit to that. <laughs> or the opportunity to smash up cars or hit dogs and rabbits or those other forms of entertainment in chapter one of the book. Yeah, but what he's saying is to sit still, and I think today we might even call it mindfulness, and quietly think. Think about what someone says and come to your own conclusions. To what degree does this have merit? To what degree uh, do I identify with any particular concept or belief or philosophy that I didn't already know? And so you have to have, he says, leisure to digest it. And then the third thing is unusual, and I wouldn't have thought that a literature professor uh, would have said this, but of course, uh, Bradbury has this literature professor saying it. He says, you have to have, number three, the right to carry out actions based on what we learn from the interaction of the first two. Meaning you have to feel like you have personal agency right. to do something with what you're thinking, which we see Mildred doesn't have. She doesn't want personal agency. She doesn't want to be different in any kind of way. And you have to have that freedom or you can't be a fully engaged human being. Let's talk about one more thing before we get rid of Faber's discussion. We move on to the next part of the book. He talks about the fact that we dropped reading voluntarily. He says, Basically, he said, we pursued ignorance as fast as we could. We wanted to be stupid. We sat around with our fingers in our ears and said, I don't want to learn. I don't want to learn. I don't want to learn. He was going to say the newspapers didn't become, they didn't quit producing them because no one, because they made them. They stopped producing them because people were only interested in two kinds of news. And he calls it passionate lips and the fist of the stomach. In other words, we like to hear about gossip and we like to hear about violence. He also says one other thing. He says they shut down the universities because nobody wanted a liberal education anymore, which I find interesting because, you know, when I told, gave my daughters advice uh, about what they wanted to do with college, I said, well, whatever you do, make sure that you come out with a degree that will give you cash at the end. I wanted them to have a marketable degree. Well, a liberal education is designed not to provide a marketable degree at all. It's designed, liberal means, as in you're going to have liberty of thought. And a large general body of knowledge instead of a specific body of knowledge. Right, so that you can problem solve. You're not learning how to fix something. You're learning how to, the complex concept of solving larger existential problems. And he says we, we stopped that because nobody cared anymore about that. The ki- people didn't want to engage text. They didn't see the value of the canon. They didn't want to talk about the meaning of things. And, and he says that there's a great loss in that. What do you, how do you feel about that? Of course, as a history teacher, you know, that, that's what he's talking about. We don't care anymore about history. 
Well, yes, and I'm going to avoid the arrogance of the presence myself in my comment right here. Uh, it's certainly the tradition of uh, teachers and people who are cultural critics to currently say that the age we are living in, uh, people are getting dumberer and dumberer and uh, becoming less able intellectually. I don't know. I don't. We just we just grow in different directions in how we learn and what we consume and how we, and now we have uh, we have the the first digital generation hitting high schools that have had to incorporate a digital world that that's new in their learning and their ability to think. So they're abandoning some old traditional ways of learning and problem solving while they're engaging this whole new digital world. And I think Bradbury was terrified of that. I don't think he knew. He had, well, he had no way to know of, of where that would go. But he saw the risk in that because it, it could produce lazy thinkers if you have somebody that's thinking for you. Well, the, uh, like we say about the Internet, the Internet will uh, certainly give you a lot more information, but it will not make you more intelligent. No. And he says, I think you talked about your favorite quote in the book. I think my favorite quote in the whole book comes right out of this section, too, when he says, because I really think this is true. He says, those who don't build must burn. In other words, you're going to be the group of people, part of that group of people that creates something, that, this positive energy that pushes forward, or you're going to be the part of the culture that tears down and slashes and burns what other people have built, attacks. You know, you have this voice of anger, this voice of deconstruction, and he goes, you're going to either be one or the other, and the person who is likely to disengage is a burner, so to speak. A burner. You're either a producer or a consumer. Yeah, he sees it as, as very cut and dry, black and forth, two sides of the, or two different, uh, two different groups of people. Do you think that's true? Well, I mean, you can't take seven billion people and, and put them in two groups, <laughs> but I think those threads are there, and especially psychologically, when you. Uh, Get into therapy situations. One of the things you assess when working with somebody um, is: Are they a consumer? Are they a taker? That's a very important uh, aspect to understand. Or are they somebody being taken advantage of by a taker? And he's going to say, and I think it's, uh, of course, I find in myself those two sides. And when I'm participating in building, you know, I don't have the energy to destroy and I don't even want to I can be more forgiving of other people in a different kind of way so uh he references all this and then of course goofball Montag says oh I'm just gonna burn down all the all the fire fire stations and he has a very you know a simple solution and, <laughs> and all thinking starts simply yes he's gonna sneak books into the firehouse then he's going to uh Tell the authorities the firehouses are full of books. Go burn down the firehouses. And I find it interesting that Faber doesn't actually just rip them apart because this is silly. But he challenges it and he gives them this other option. Why don't you just go back and take my little headphone with you and uh, and engage you know, your old buddies. And I, this time I'll go with you and see what happens. So they do. They go back, but before he gets to uh, the firehouse, he has to go run through, go by um, the women. And he can't help it. He has to mess with them. And, and I find it interesting because he's got all this passion. 
and he feels something so deeply and it's just going to express itself in this very um, dangerous and uh, not necessary way. Well, it's interesting whenever people develop a new passion, um, there's always a maturity that lags behind it. The maturity that can not control the passion, but can steer it. So you don't want to necessarily turn the laser beam off. You want to direct the laser beam. And of course, he's not good at that yet. No, and the idea is he's doing exactly what you're supposed to do when you get a new idea. According to Faber, he got this new idea. He had this thought. He had like five minutes to think about it. I guess not intense labor. But he's going to exercise his right to have an actionable uh, you know, choice of what he wants to do with it. And so he's going to exercise his freedom and freak out these women. <laughs> and how does he freak them out? Well, they're all sitting there in there. Uh, with their, uh, you know, highly stimulating television, which is deliberately designed just to kind of be lights and, and flashes, which I find interesting because I like these kinds of shows too. You know, when I think about, uh, like, I don't know, like one of the Born Identity movie series, I like those movies. and But basically they're just chases. Like you just watch somebody run. And they're very, you know, jumping on this, jumping on that, going around, crashing, burning. All those things are stimulating it, but they're not really deep, so to speak. And, and of course, he describes it as monstrous crystal chandeliers tinkling in a thousand chimes. They're Cheshire cats smiling, burning through the walls of the house. So it's bang, 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 stimulus, 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 stimulus. And there's... You think you might have some meaning there, but really there isn't. And he it's does, just fun. He does a very rude thing. He reaches over and turns all the panels off. <laughs> and now we're going to read. This is a group of people who, anyway, I find the whole scene amazing. Well, it's horrible. And it's described as the images drained away as if the water had been let from a gigantic crystal bowl of hysterical fish. Which is really funny imagery. <laughs> that is, it's great. And the first question that he asks wasn't about, hey, you want to read this book? Let me read you this philosophical thing. He says this, I notice your husbands aren't here tonight. Mm -hmm. So he goes back, and like I said, this relationship between the interpersonal. and Because he's seeing that this connect is, is, is affecting his soul and his heart. And it's affecting theirs too. And you see that they don't have a connection either with their husbands. In fact, they draw attention to this. He says, uh, well, Pete's at war. going to be a quick war, 48 hours. And then she says, Pete and I, we don't, we've already decided we're not going to cry if something were to happen. We're independent. Be independent, he always said. If I get killed, you just go right ahead and don't cry. Get married again and don't think of me. And of course, they all kind of have... Uh, this kind of detached relationship, not just with their husbands and he's not attacking romance or anything like that. They have the same thing going on with their kids. Well, yeah, the husbands are disposable and interchangeable and the children are the same. And, and, uh, one of the ladies talks about her children and said, they just as soon kick as kiss me. And I'm, you know, I have them three days a month, but I'm always able to get rid of them and put them in school and do all those kind of things. And so, uh, he's laying bare all their detachedness from their relationships. And then to try to throw him off this disturbing conversation, uh, they say, well, let's talk politics to please Guy as if that's going to be an improvement. And it sounds improving. You know, politics sounds serious. 
And you see that they have as much political engagement uh, as a child. They're selecting their president based on his beauty. Oh, he's a beautiful man, which lots of people do. Uh, this guy's ugly. And you see that they're being manipulated uh, through the television on what to think about any any particular thing. And the manipulation isn't even very deep. It's very simplistic. They, haven't, they don't want to think about anything, so they just make snap judgments. Of course you're going to select Winston Noble over Hubert Hug or Hogue, however you say that. It's horrible. And of course Montag wants to you know, jump onto something a lot deeper. And so he says, well, let's just talk about poetry. <laughs> and that's everyone's death words. I would like to say this in defense of Montag and everybody else. Poetry is difficult for people who have been reading. <laughs> it is difficult. And poetry is designed to be difficult. It's this condensation of language. You're not supposed to read a poem just once. You're not supposed to get it. You're supposed to meditate on it. You're supposed to think through it. It's supposed to have so many layers. And it's, an, it's a real hard, difficult mental exercise, which we're going to have a supplement to this episode. Uh because we know you want to get into some poetry. Well, I wanted to say, first of all, Montag is going to read this poem, Dover Beach, which is a, a very fascinating selection that Bradbury has taken to, to help make his point in this part of the story. And we will do a separate podcast where we talk about that. And I want to tell you right now, Christy is an excellent poetry teacher. That alone is worth the, the listen. She will explain a lot of great things uh, about the structure and form of poetry. And once you get some of those explanations and you look at this poem and it gets taken apart and gets reapplied back to Fahrenheit 451, you will admire Bradbury even more for his selection of this particular poem at this particular point in the story. Well, that's true. Dover Beach by Matthew Arnold. It's probably one of his most famous uh poems is an awesome poem and we definitely need to talk about it at length but he wants to read it and you see that um he's going to make them against their will listen uh to them read and he begins to read in a low stumbling voice that grows firmer as he progressed from line to line and it says this his voice went out across the desert into the whiteness and around the three sitting women there in the great hot Emptiness, And, of course, all these adjectives are used metaphorically because empty can't be hot, but it's just this intensity of, I guess, rage. They're super mad. And he reads it. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdled, girdle furled, sorry. But now I only hear its melancholy long, withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind down the vast edges, drear and naked shingles of the world. Now, if you're like every other student in literature, you just went, huh? I just had a sieve moment right there. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just went through. You're supposed to. But uh, I do want to talk about the women's reaction. Mrs. Phelps cries. Uh, this is so disturbing to these women to have this poem read to them. And uh, there are reasons why. Tell us some of the reasons why they're so they're crying and upset about this, hearing this poem. Well, first of all, they're confused, and they don't want to be confused. They live in a world where you have sounds and everything's simple, and you're and you're fed everything, and you don't feel any need, and you're being read stuff that you can't understand. That in and of itself, I think, leaves them disconcerting. But the second 
um, section of this poem that he pulls out says, ah, love, let us be true to one another for the world, which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams. So various, so beautiful, so new hath really neither joy nor love nor light. Now that's the most famous line in the poem. Ah, love, let us be true to one another. Well, these are passionate words and you can, even if you don't understand the context, you feel the, I think anyone would feel the passion of the poet and yet he says something like uh the world hath really neither jo joy nor love nor light nor sortitude nor peace nor help for pain and those are all negative things and and she's being confronted with these maybe for the very first time and it just bothers her when it's, and it ends with ignorant armies clash by night and of course her husband's at war they you know these are you don't want to think about this stuff it's not nice well, needless to say, it does not go well. And Faber is whispering in Montag's ear through his uh, earpiece that he's created, telling Montag, play it off, get out of the situation, go throw the book in the incinerator, act like you're having your... Uh, every fireman has their one time in their life where they once a year they get that crazy from being around books. Pretend like this was your once a year crazy moment, get out of the situation. And so Montag does. And I feel like we go on to a very, very important line um, later on. As Montag gets done talking to these women, he sa it says, Out of two separate and opposite things, a third, and one day he would look back upon the fool and know the fool, I guess referring to himself, he says, Even now he could feel the start of the long journey, the leave-taking, the going away from the self he had been. Yeah, you see this... Well, he's done a very, very dangerous thing. And I really think you could almost say that this uh, is a climactic moment from him. And, and the climax and, and stories, people think it means like the point where they have the most, the biggest part of the action, which a big reveal. Yeah. Which in this case doesn't happen until the next section in terms of the plot. But right here, he's doing something from which he cannot retreat. He exposes himself. He exposes Mildred to her friends, to their community, and he can't go back from this. And, you know, and she, there, he's confronted by these women. Silly words, silly words, silly, awful, hurting words. And he, they're equating it to hate speech. You're hateful. You're hurting us. You're aggressing us. And he pursues onward, and he says, "Go home." And he goes, "Think about your husbands." The, the, blowing their brains out because one of the women's right. husbands had committed suicide. Think about yours getting killed in war. Think about the dozens of abortions that you've had. Go home, go home, go home. And he's basically saying, think about difficult things, things that are going to pain you, things that are going to make you uncomfortable. And he can't go back from that. Even Millie's not going to let him go back from that. This is a very important thing. <clears throat> Whenever you deal with people who... Um, have a sea change. And a sea change to me is that moment where they realize the world is different than what I ever thought it was before and I can no longer go back. Uh, interestingly enough, in dealing with abuse victims in therapy, uh, many abuse victims don't make that turn. But the, but the ones that do, you can see this sea change that comes over their face and they realize in the deepest recesses of their mind, life is very different from what I thought it was. And I feel like Montag is having this kind of abuse victim wake up and he understands upon pain of death, I can't go back to anything I ever was. 
and he's stuck. He doesn't know how to go forward. He only knows he can't go backwards. And he does go forward. And of course, he's going to go now. He had the success in beating down the women. Woohoo. Now he's going to go try to beat down uh, Beatty, and he's not going to be successful. Well, before we move on to that, uh, I want to tell you this. Uh, I'm a shameless uh, Shine Down fanboy. I love the band Shine Down, have for years. They've got a great song called Unity, one of my favorites. Uh, and it's got a couple of lines in there that I immediately thought of when I read this in Fahrenheit 451. The, the line says, they say it's never too late to stop being afraid. And there is no one else here, so why should I wait? And in the blink of an eye, the past begins to fade. And the next important lines are, so have you ever been caught in a sea of despair? And your moment of truth is the day that you say, I'm not scared. I see Beatty having that moment. You mean Montag. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I see Montag having that moment. Yeah, he's not scared. He doesn't care. And he's going to go forward uh, and he's going to confront Beatty, who really, to me, symbolizes, well, he is the power structure uh, of the time. And And he is knowledgeable. He's not like these women who've never read a book in their life. He's super well read. And the rest of the section with he and um, Montag talking is him throwing quote after quote after quote, and Montag can't match them. It's and, a quote war, and, and even uh, Faber, who's talking in his ear, <laughs> can't match him either. Right, and he even quotes the Bible, and he says the devil can cite scripture for his purpose, which is, of course, out of the Bible. So he can use it any way he wants to, and he's going to make the point, and it is a valid point, he says that the words that you're reading don't agree with each other. So you're not, you can't just stop listening to me and listening to them and find truth there. They don't even agree with themselves. They're controversy at every point. And you're going to engage that. Which is interesting because uh, Beatty has summed up the whole argument against books. There's controversy, conflict, and difference. And Faber has been saying that's the beauty of the books. There's controversy and, and they conflict. And Bradbury is making the argument that that's where we find meaning. We don't find meaning in agreement, which is really what you would think. We find peace uh, in the world when everyone is in total agreement. And Bradbury is making the argument, no, you find peace in your relationships when you're allowed to kind of duke it out intellectually. You're not going to let it escalate to violence. You don't have to. There's respect there. I respect you, so I'm not going to aggress you, but I am going to challenge you. And through this endeavor of challenging the drops of friendship are formed, life is created, meaning is constructed, value is found, and people give. This this is a giving society instead of a taking society. And of course, uh, Beatty is completely opposed to all this and just shuts it down. Right. And he, like we said, it's a quote war. He goes to war with Montag, fielding contradictory quote after contradictory quote and saying, oh, you know, books are traitorous friends. You can't trust them. Their ideas compete and they conflict. And at the end of the day, uh, they load up and he says, well, we're out. And the truck pulls out. And this time, BD is driving. And this, I think, is where we see this engagement of technology where Bradbury is introducing the, the third idea that I think is important and that technology can be used 
to create tyranny uh, and to shut down conversation. And that's what the mechanical uh, hound is doing. It's shutting down the, uh, the conversation. And when the conversation is shut down, that's when you lose everything. And so they've jumped in the, uh, in the salamander and they're getting ready to basically, we're shutting this thing down. No more talk. And they get in the salamander, and Beatty is driving, which he does not ordinarily do. They're driving fast. They're sliding around the corners. It's more urgent than Montag has seen before. And then they get to their destination, and they look up, and it's Montag's home. They've come to burn. Oops. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll pick up uh, on that next time. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today. Uh, as you can tell, Gary looks at these texts, uh, many of them are my favorite books, uh, from a different perspective uh, than I do. Some of these books I've taught for years from a traditionally literary perspective. He brings fresh eyes from the context of history, psychology, and culture, being a musician and a teacher. I hope, if nothing else, we've given you something to think about today. And don't forget, if you have a particular book you'd like us to talk about, or if there's something in this discussion that we really should have added, uh, let us know on our Facebook or Instagram page. We'd love to hear from you. It's not our goal. I hope that you realize that you agree with us. We just want you to engage the books and enjoy thinking about them like we do. So, coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, again, thank you for sharing your time with us today. Reach out to us anytime on our Facebook, Instagram page, or website. Until next time when we conclude Fahrenheit 451 with a final section called Burning Bright. Don't forget to subscribe. Peace out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.